Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello to all our fertility and sterility listeners. This is FNS On Air Podcast for January 2024. We're on volume 121 now uh, in our fourth season and going strong. I'm Micah Hill, the media editor of FNS, and I'm joined by our team of Kurt Barnhart, Eve Feinberg, and Pietro Bortoletta. Good morning, my friends. Hey, Micah, good to be with you in the last podcast recording of the year, but looking ahead and recording the first podcast episode of... Good morning, everybody. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> good morning, everybody. I have two shout outs to start out 2024. The first one is to Oscar Duarte Filho. It was so wonderful to meet you in Brazil. And second is for Claire Parker's sister-in-law. I didn't get your name, but thanks for being a listener, even though you're not an REI. We got to tell you, if you happen to run into us at a meeting, at a conference, at a talk, please come say hi. We love hearing that people listen to the podcast. They like it. And we actually really want some feedback. So the things you love, things you'd like to see more of, pull us aside, let us know. We'll make sure to give you a shout out on the podcast too. All right. I like the shout out. So we're jumping right into the front matter of the journal. The first is our views and reviews from editorial editor Dom DeZiegler. Uh, this is looking at telomere length. Is it a marker for reproductive aging? Uh, there's a series of four articles uh, in this that cover the egg. It covers the sperm. It talks about somatic cells versus uh, germ cells and how telomere lengths uh, might be different or the same in those. Uh, it's a very nice review on uh, something uh, that I think is a timely topic. So good views and reviews this month. We also have an Inklings. This was from Laura uh, Rienzi, also an editorial editor. And this is really talking about the shift in how we think about IVF or ART, um, switching from a cycle to cycle perspective to more of a sort of multi-cycle or a whole patient perspective. And what this means is that patients no longer come in, have an egg retrieval, have a fresh embryo transfer, it doesn't work, you know, rinse, repeat, start that cycle over. Uh, there's a lot of dichotomy that's uh, now happening in how we counsel patients and you know, a good example would be a 37-year-old who maybe, you know, important first question would be, how many children do you want? And she says, I want three. You're probably not serving her well by doing one cycle and getting pregnant now if she doesn't have supernumerary embryos. So sort of breaking out of this cycle-to-cycle -cycle way that we think about treatments. Uh, Laura talks about it specifically from the standpoint of duo-stem, but actually what it reminded me of is uh, something that SART's dealing with now is exactly this change. If you do those three egg retrieval cycles to get enough supernumerary embryos and you transfer from cycle three, uh, should that be one out of one or one out of three? And how do we report what's actually happening fairly for our members uh, and for patients in a way that they can understand? So I thought this was a very timely article and certainly something that uh, we're thinking about nationally uh, with SARC. All right, and now we're going to jump straight from that uh, front matter into our seminal contribution. Pietro, uh, we're talking about endometrial thickness and obstetric outcomes. Tell us about that. 
It's always nice when I get to steal a seminal contribution from Kurt. Um, and I guess this one is a, is a nice deal because this is the topic that I really enjoy talking about. Um, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard from me on a high level about this. But we're, again, talking about the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in frozen embryo transfer cycles, particularly hormone replacement cycles, or as some of you say, programmed frozen embryo transfer cycles. The language here matters because we're not always talking about the same thing. So you've heard from me on a high level how the presence or absence of a corpus luteum may be an important mediator of placentally mediated disorders. However, if we focus our attention back onto the uterus and away from the ovaries, one area that hasn't received a ton of attention is the endometrial thickness at the time of progesterone initiation in hormone replacement cycles and its role in perinatal outcomes. So what's the potential biologic plausibility here? Well, in women with preeclampsia, spiral artery remodeling, extravillous trophoblast invasion are all impaired. So it's reasonable to think that the thickness of the endometrium where that impairment is occurring may be important here. The objective of this study was to look retrospectively at a single center's data and to investigate the association between endometrial thickness and adverse perinatal outcomes in women undergoing that hormone replacement frozen embryo transfer cycle. The authors here hypothesized that the endometrial thickness might be linked to abnormal placental development resulting in placentally mediated outcomes. So the single institution data came from Sun Yat-sen University in China between 2017 and 2022, and they looked at women under the age of 43, delivered a singleton live birth following that HRT cycle. They excluded cycles where PGT was performed, and we've talked a little bit about potential risk of trophectoderm biopsy and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. That's probably a thoughtful exclusion. They excluded chronic hypertension, diabetes, a PCOS diagnosis, and even endometrial thicknesses less than seven millimeters. So if you're paying attention here, this is a highly selected population. Keep this in mind as we talk a little bit about the results. And I told you a little bit about how language matters. And when we're talking about program cycles, we may not always be talking about the same thing. In this paper, there are two forms of programmed or hormone replacement cycles that were investigated. Those with and without agonist pretreatment. Both cycles utilized oral estradiol, initially two milligrams twice a day, but able to vary the dose and the duration to achieve an endometrium greater than seven millimeters of thickness based on the treating provider's recommendations. And the progesterone was administered either vaginally or intramuscularly in combination with oral progesterone. So this is progesterone both ways. It's Everyone got oral progesterone, but you could also have received supplemental vaginal or intramuscular. And this was entirely based on the preference of the physician and the patient. The transfer occurred on the sixth day after progesterone initiation. Progesterone was continued until 10 weeks of gestation. So a little messy here, a bunch of different kinds of progesterone, different routes of administration. And if your progesterone wonk like Micah is, you're kind of warning signs going off here that there may be some, some funniness in this methods. And if you're paying attention to the perinatal outcomes, the things that they looked at were placentally mediated disorders and their immediate outcomes, such as hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, growth restriction, abruption, and they also reported on neonatal outcomes like birth weight and gestational age, et cetera. Now, a multivariable logistic regression was performed to first identify risk factors associated with the incidence of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, adjusting for all the things you would want adjusted for. In total, they had 2,200 cycles resulting in live births, and they broke these groups up into four. They broke these patients up into four groups. Group one had an endometrial thickness of seven to eight millimeters. So this is kind of your just barely good enough. Group two was eight to 10 millimeters. Group three was 10 to 12. And then the important group here is group four, where the endometrial thickness was above 12 millimeters. 
So off the bat, important to acknowledge that there were no statistically significant differences in maternal age, a transfer, infertility duration, FSH levels, E2 levels, E2 replacement regimen, all of kind of the baseline cycle characteristics were the same across four groups. The only thing that was different was that in patients in group one, that thin endometrium, seven to eight millimeters, just good enough, they received higher dosages of estradiol supplementation, probably to achieve that just barely thick enough lining measurement to proceed with the transfer cycle. So what do they find? The big takeaway top line finding is that the incidence of hypertensive disorders was significantly elevated in patients in group four, patients with a thickness of greater than 12 millimeters compared to the other groups. And when multivariable logistic regression was performed, this relationship persisted. And when these data were fit to an RCS curve, a nonlinear relationship was noted between endometrial thickness and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, indicating that the probability of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in women was the lowest between 9 to 10 millimeters in thickness. Interestingly, as an aside here, there was an increased incidence of placenta previa among both the thin group and the thick group, group one and group four, in comparison to that middle group where you had kind of a more normal endometrial thickness. Now, if you think about these two findings, both of these seem to indicate that there's a Goldilocks thickness, not too thick, not too thin, but just the right size to both minimize the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and minimize the risk of abnormal placentation, and in this case, specifically placenta previa. Now, what does one do with all of this? Well, I don't know that I'm good enough to titrate the estrogen dose to achieve a Goldilocks endometrial thickness and thread the needle to that 9 to 10 millimeter endometrial thickness. That's tricky. And I don't know that any of my colleagues are good are that good either. Well, what this makes me think is that there's probably some benefit to trying to achieve a physiologic environment at the time of transfer. Sometimes it's physiologic from letting the corpus luteum produce its own progesterone. Sometimes it's physiologic to letting the linus get to kind of a normal thickness, not a super physiologic thickness. But better yet, you've heard me say this before, I prefer to minimize the use of the hormone replacement cycle entirely, unless my hands are really tied. I think the data for corpus luteum presence absence is much more compelling and actionable than trying to target a specific endometrial thickness for safety in programmed embryo transfer cycles. I think in the best of circumstances, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going for please God get thick enough to the endometrial lining, and I think it's unrealistic to cancel cycles if I overshoot an endometrial thickness, if I get them into a range where I think there's a slightly higher signal of badness. But maybe it does give us some pause for pushing these cycles long. I know we always talk about how programmed embryo transfer cycles are, are, the, are really nice for physicians and for patients who are trying to optimize transferring on a certain day with a certain doctor to avoid a scheduling conflict. Well, maybe pushing these cycles too far where the lining gets too thick may not be the best. I think obviously we need a lot more data to be able to solidify that, um, that concern. But I think a fun paper from FNS, an interesting paper, and I think kind of adds to the growing amount of data that We've been paying a lot of attention to the stimulation, but we really should be paying a lot more attention to when we're putting these embryos back and what's the safest and most optimal way to achieve a singleton live birth after ART. Micah, Eve, Kurt? What if it's actually the opposite, that women who have underlying endothelial or vascular dysfunction grow a thicker lining and we're um, looking at the wrong surrogate markers for risk factors for disease? You think the thickness is a uh, symptom of the disease and the disease is just the ability to grow a thick lining? Just throwing it out there. <laughs> I don't have a strong feeling, but I, I can't help but wonder, like, it can't be that precise, right? And I feel like these diseases happen in the absence of ART. Are we perhaps unmasking some underlying risk factors that previously hadn't been measured or paid attention to? 
don't I'll know. Push, just a thought. I'll, I'll push back there because I think the data for Asherman's actually looks a lot like this data. People with really thin linings also have an increased risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, the abnormal placentation, and those placentally mediated outcomes. I think it's probably just the extremes. Too much of one thing or too little of something is probably bad. And if you can find that bell-shaped curve, you're probably going to maximize safety and maximize patient outcomes. I was thinking along the same lines. We have a crude measurement and we really don't understand the, the microarchitecture. And I agree, you know, abnormalities in both ways are going to give us thin and thick. We have so much more to learn about this area. But the reason I'm, I'm glad it's this kind of paper like this is it shows us that you know where to look and what to study. But I think in years from now, we're not going to be talking about thickness. We're going to be talking about something else. Great discussion. All right, Eve, uh, just in the last month, a fellow came to me and said, we should look at uh, insurance mandates and states and uh, see what that does as far as uh, equity and access to cycles. And I said, yeah, we've got a paper coming out in FNS. Not we, but it's coming out. The journal does. So tell us about the paper this month that looked at that. Thanks so much, Micah. The title of this next article is State Insurance Mandates and Racial and Ethnic Inequities in Assisted Reproductive Technology Utilization by Ann Kordiakis with senior authors Elia Dashi and Alan Pensius. The primary objective of this study was to examine whether the scope of state-mandated insurance coverage for ART and the proportion of patients eligible for coverage are associated with a reduction in racial and ethnic inequities in ART utilization. This is a national cross-sectional ecologic study employing estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau of All Women, ages 20 to 44, living in the U.S. in 2018. They also looked at the number of women who initiated an ART cycle during that year that was reported to the CDC, and data were obtained from the National ART Surveillance System. Data on health insurance coverage for this population in 2018 were obtained from the American Community Survey. State mandates were categorized into three categories, comprehensive, eight states, limited, nine states, or no mandate, 33 states. Main outcome measures were racial and ethnic ART utilization rates, defined as the number of women undergoing one or more ART cycles per 100,000 women. Comprehensive mandate utilization rates were recalculated using denominators corrected for the estimated proportion of population eligible for coverage, and that's a really important point, as mandates do not apply to all insurance plans. This is the reality we're often faced with in Illinois. Health insurance offered by state or federal public assistance programs, federal or military, or self-insured, do not have to participate in state-mandated coverage. Here's what they found. Across all mandate categories, highest utilization rates of ART were with non-Hispanic white and Asian populations. Lowest rates of utilization were among Hispanic, non-Hispanic Black, and other and multiple races. And this is consistent with many other studies published, as well as SART data. I think the uniqueness of this study, though, comes in while evaluating the demographics of the comprehensive mandate group. Within this group, there was less disparity in accessing ART services in the Hispanic and non-Hispanic Black group compared to the no-mandate group. They clearly showed that racial and ethnic inequities were reduced in states with comprehensive infertility coverage mandates. I thought it was a really interesting study and very much in line with prior data showing the benefits of mandates. I published a similar study on a much smaller scale back many years ago when I was a fellow, specifically looking at ART utilization in the military setting, which is a somewhat equal access to care model with comprehensive coverage for basic workup and reduced cost of ART. 
We saw equal utilization in Black patients, but still lower utilization in Hispanic patients for reasons that were unclear and arguably still remain unclear. I think data like these, along with other data looking at safety of ART, reduction of multiple pregnancy rates with mandates, and higher cumulative ART success can all be used to lobby for increasing coverage to help patients get the care that they need. One point that I think worth mentioning is just that this is ART data. It doesn't give the full picture of who presents for workup and evaluation of infertility or who undergoes IUI or reproductive surgery. I do think, though, that ART is a good index by which to measure access to care. I just wanted to highlight that point. Kurt, Micah, Pietro, what do you think? This is such a complex situation. It, it reminds me of, of a loss of analogies. I think it's a, at a minimum, we have to get care to everybody. But even as a starting point, that doesn't mean all people come for care. I mean, we're still talking to each other in silos and we don't get the information evenly distributed to people. And even with options, people don't come in. It's, it's, it's so complex, but I'm glad to see literature like this um, bringing it to the highlight. Yeah, I think it really adds to the growing wealth of data showing the benefit of comprehensive insurance coverage. And that's the tip of the iceberg of what needs to be done. I know we're arguing about other things in politics and, mandate and mandates and care at the moment, but do you think that this will ever become to the forefront of that? Do you think this is as controversial? That I would say controversial, but I think as long as people still view infertility care as elective, it's going to be very hard to push it through in all 50 states. And I think that that's a problem. Yeah, I'd learned something when I was a fellow too, looking at international medicine, that it's funny that we confabulate places that have really high fertility rates or even demographics that have high fertility rates. They don't recognize that in those same demographics, they have really, really high infertility rates that they go together. But people focus on, let's just say, teen pregnancy and don't recognize how big a problem it is in other communities. Uh, well, let's keep let's keep going. Let's let's get the word out. Let's uh, have everyone listen to our podcast. Let's disseminate and shout from the rooftops and see what we can do. Speaking of eliminating disparities, I think Micah, in the new year, federal Blue Cross Blue Shield or federal employees, I believe, are now going to have access to ART coverage. Is that right? I have read that, but I I don't know exactly how true that is. But yeah, I've also heard that. I hope so. And uh, I know there's also things work in the works for the military as well. We hear that every year, but, we, you know, keep hoping and keep striving for that access and that coverage. Great article and a great discussion. So, Kurt, sometimes we have themes that appear in the journal where we have a couple of articles on a similar topic. So we have uh, two this month on AZFC. And so we'll hand it over to you to tell us what we can learn about that from the Science This Month. Yeah, Micah, I, I, I learned a lot. You guys are asking me to delve into uh, the reaches of my memory and my training a long time ago about male infertility. I've de facto become the male infertility specialist at Penn over the last six months since we've lost our urologist. And I'm even doing exams for men for a male contraceptive study we're doing. So this is all coming back to me. So you pick the right person, at least for this week. So I have two papers that are looking at azospermia factor C microdeletions. One is a meta-analysis by the first author, Stacy Kolako. As I said, it's a meta-analysis out of Mumbai, India. Uh, and the second is a research letter by a research group well-known to us. The first author is Jessica Marinaro and the uh, senior author, Peter Schlegel. 
they're different pieces, but they do bring together this issue that we can talk about for a minute. So again, I, I don't mean to keep referring to my age, but we didn't understand um, the azoceramic factor a long time ago when I was a fellowship. We, we, it was a big mystery to us why people had um, azospermia in some people and this idea that it was genetic and you could actually map some of the spermiogenesis or spermatogenesis to the Y chromosome was, was incredible novel research. And we all should learn that history because it's contemporary history. But it now in a simple sentence, it's progressed from we didn't really understand the genes involved in spermatogenesis to now we have like subtypes of genes and we know exactly where they are. And one such gene is the um, azospermia fact factor in general that has um, three deletions. And I find it fascinating, you should know this just by passing by, that those three, three deletions have very different functions. There's an AZFA deletion in men that's most associated with Sertoli cell only syndrome. There's an AZTB that's associated with maturation arrest and germ cell arrest. And there's an AZFC that's associated with hyperspermatogenesis. And that's the one we see mostly because that results in oligospermia. The other two are severe enough that they're very different defects and um, often not noted. So now that we know that, and we're probably screening our patients for this disease, the question becomes more of a clinical one. We found people with this disorder. They're, they're not always completely azospermic. And often we've, we have a hammer that can treat many issues of male factor, which is sperm retrieval. So the question becomes, if we have this microdeletion, is it still possible and plausible to obtain sperm from these men, either by a microtessie or something like that, or occasionally we can save sperm? And then the question is, is that sperm better or worse than others with similar clinical presentations? So I hope to frame the issue here. So really, the meta-analysis is basically saying, if I could obtain sperm from men with an AZFC mutation, is that sperm, or lack of scientific integrity in my statement here, as good as sperm? in men without that mutation. So the, the meta-analysis basically looks at a number of studies that says, let me take people that have low sperm counts or azospermic and had a sperm tessie, and let's find out whether the reproductive potential of this pe are the people the same. So we're not necessarily talking about how many sperm we get or is the, is the sperm retrieval possible. We're saying we have sperm now and let's see what the reproductive outcomes are. So the primary outcome was sperm retrieval, but the secondary outcomes were outcomes of ART. So let me give you the, the high level findings first. So in the meta-analysis, they found that men with AZF see micro deletions compared to similar men without such a deletion were actually more likely to find sperm. That association was at an odds ratio of 1.8, but it wasn't statistically significant. So the first question was, we can't say that there's a lot of difference between the, the amount of times we can actually obtain sperm for ART. However, when you go farther along the way and work with the sperm that you have, they're finding a lower fertilization rate, a lower clinical pregnancy rate, and a lower live birth rate to about 0.54. So the bottom line is we are finding sperm, but that sperm seems to have a lower capacity to fertilize, to create an embryo, and to result in a live birth. So I just told you the basic main findings of the meta-analysis. The meta-analysis is done well. We are talking about observational studies, somewhere between six and 10 studies. We are talking about um, the right statistical methods with the random effects model. But really, I want you to focus on what that actually means to us. So it's basically saying that this gene in spermatogenesis is 
still allowing us to get sperm, but somehow the sperm isn't as good as if you didn't have that microdeletion. So it's not a question of finding it, it's a question of what it means. So the authors go on to a, a nice discussion that we should talk about a little bit of, does that have something to do with actually the genetics of the embryo and the sperm's contribution to pregnancy? So it's possible that genes might play some role in early fertilization. So it's not just a single gene in spermatogenesis, but there might be a fertilization defect. It might even be that the transcriptome analysis has shown that expressions of several Y-linked genes, including those in the AZF location, are important in human embryo development, as well as in embryonic and induced pluripotent cells. So the high-level take-home message here is that we still have, we found a gene that has something to do with spermatogenesis, but these genes and maybe linked genes around it might also have to do with the early embryo development and also the ability to have a live birth. So it's not just that simple. So that's why I like this meta-analysis. It's really not going to affect my clinical care um, today other than I won't say no to a patient that has this defect and there, there is a possibility of getting pregnant. Please note that hopefully recognize that if a man presents with this, that his offspring are going to have this defect, but it is possible to work with the sperm, but it opens up this whole new line of research to the idea that the genes from the Y chromosome may have a lot more to do with human development than just making sperm. Before we have a discussion, let me tell you about the other paper, which is a research letter and actually quite, um, kind of simple. It's the same topic, but a different question. In this case, the title is Sperm Production is Stable Over Time with Men with Azospermic Factor C, again, a Y chromosome microdilation. This is a very nice, uh, I'm going to call it a case study because that's what it is, or a case series where they take a large number of men in very well-known urologic practice and basically say, if I find these men, do I really need to like have um, fertility preservation therapy right away because these men are going to deteriorate over time, or at least their sperm count is going to deteriorate over time? Or is it possible that this is just a lifelong stable condition? Previously, there's been controversy about that well laid out in the introduction of the paper. But what they actually tell us is that it looks like men with this defect are stable. Now, it's a variable presentation. Some men are azospermic. Some men make sperm one time when they come for a semen analysis and years later don't. But those that make sperm, it seems to be that the number um, and the ability to get it remains the same. So there is no need to say, if I see somebody at 20 years old to save their sperm now, because at 40, they're not going to have sperm. So it seems to be a chronic condition that's just stable. It's a bad condition to have with lots of with, with lots of defects and, and low sperm, but it's not a progressive condition. And that's the message of um, the research letter. So I hope you all learned a lot about AZFC. I did, um, but it, it's, let's look at it. As I've said before, let's let it flow over us. What did we learn about this, this condition? Um, and uh, you know, does it affect um, our fertility care? Guys? And Kurt, to your bigger question about you know these Y chromosome genes maybe having more to do than just spermatogenesis, you mentioned that the offspring will at least have the same microdeletion if they're a male, or worse, I guess, because they could have de novo deletions that happen. But as far as we know, that the offspring have been healthy. I mean, if if they have if we have data on their Y microdeletion status, I assume uh, the data says that they're overall healthy, or do we just not have that data? I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry if I'm going to pontificate here for a second. I, I saw a really great presentation at Penn about a, a basic science spermatogenesis guy. And I, I think I recall him saying that this is not a health condition for the man. 
like it's not associated with cardiac disease or, or cancer risk. But he's convinced, and that's what I alluded to, that the, the genes on the Y chromosome, especially around this area, might be genes that are associated with the first couple cell divisions of the embryo before the embryo takes over its own genome, that the male associated genes are associated with the first cell divisions and the placentation. And that can have effects of, on the offspring. But the offspring doesn't have long-term effects because it has a Y microchromosome deletion. That was always my understanding as well. So I guess that's a, that's at least encouraging to hear. But fascinating that what you brought up. Eve, Pietro, any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the take-home point that I would make from this is not all male factor infertility is the same. And I think that there's a vast difference in reproductive outcomes for young women who are partnered with males who have an AZFC microdilation as opposed to young women who are partnered with males who have oligospermia. Often those who have just oligospermia have some of the highest ART outcomes, whereas these data really show that the AZFC deletion is associated with perhaps worse ART outcomes. So I think it's really important in terms of how do we counsel patients when they're sitting in front of us and they want to know what their likelihood of success is with ART, what can they expect from a cycle, how do we anticipate things going, I think this gives us a healthy dose of caution in how to counsel these women that not all young females who are partnered with male factor have the best prognosis. And I'm curious to see if we can apply some of these advanced sperm selection techniques, which I understand there's not a strong evidence base for yet, but I think being developed and being published more and more. Once we have some of the sperm, is there a way to select kind of the best of the best sperm to achieve fertilization rate, blast development rate, embryo quality rates that approach someone without an AZFC mutation. I'm talking about microfluidics. I'm talking about Pixie. I'm talking about kind of all of the things that we have all talked about where there is and is not data for. And I see Eve kind of grinning I'm at me through the screen. Yeah, I know you are, but the data, let the data speak for itself. No, we'll see what no, the data no, shows. I, I'm going to push back on that. So I think that there's a key difference Microfluidic techniques may be able to detect DNA fragmentation. They may be able to select the best sperm. But by definition, when you have an AZFC microdeletion, every single sperm is affected. And so I don't think that we're going to see a difference using some of those techniques in this particular diagnosis. But maybe I'm wrong. I agree with fair, you. That, that's basically fair, the fair take point. Home. That's a good point. Yeah, that's the take-home message I got from this discussion, is that this really is a genetic cause of infertility. It's not complete infertility, and it's not progressive, but it's a very different beast than somebody that just has a low sperm count for unknown reasons or for other reasons. What's interesting, though, is it's. I also heard that you should try, that, that it's possible to try, as long as you understand that you, you know, your, your offspring is going to have this disorder and um, you're, you're passing it on. But um, it's it's amazing that all the things we face in infertility practice, there seems to be our tools work, at least in some people. Yeah. And I just, I don't want the point about the research letter to be lost. I think that's a really important point that this is not a degenerative condition and it doesn't worsen over time. And I think that that's um, just a really good nugget to have as well. Yeah, I thought so too, Eve. I, I dove into the data a little bit to see, you know, even if the means didn't really change, were there maybe even one or two patients that seemed to, you know, go to azospermia where you you might not see it at the whole population level, but it didn't even seem to, to be that. It was very, very reassuring data. 
Uh, the great discussion. Eve, we're coming right back to you. I was really excited to see this uh, article from uh, Dr. Octay on ovarian tissue transplantation uh, since the, the outcomes are so sparse in the literature. Tell us about this cutting edge uh, research. I really enjoyed this paper. The title is Comparison of Orthotopic and Heterotopic Autologous Ovarian Tissue Transplantation, or OTT, outcomes. Kurt, I know you don't love acronyms, but that really is a mouthful. The objective of this study was to compare outcomes of orthotopic and heterotopic ovarian tissue transplantation techniques. It was a very small observational study. 12 patients were included, six with orthotopic transplantation and six with heterotopic transplantation. Ovarian tissue was harvested using laparoscopy where transplant was not performed fresh, tissue was slow frozen. For our learners, orthotopic transplantation is the return of tissue to the original site. So usually the ovarian tissue is transplanted back to the ovary, whereas heterotopic transplantation is to a different site. And in this study, heterotopic transplantation was either to the forearm or to the abdomen via preperitoneal upper abdominal transplantation. Also for our learners, transplantation of ovarian tissue can be for one of two indications. One for fertility in order to retrieve oocytes or allow ovulation, or two for ovarian endocrine function. The study was taken from the author's database over a 24-year period from 1999 to 2023 to identify those that underwent OTT. Inclusion criteria were those patients who had no evidence of ovarian insufficiency at the time of tissue harvesting, and all surgeries were performed by the same surgeon. Of the 12 included patients, two underwent fresh transplantation, and the others had tissue frozen for later reimplantation. After tissue was transplanted, patients were placed on cyclic estrogen and progesterone to ensure maximum revascularization. HRT was discontinued as soon as an antral follicle was observed on pelvic ultrasound. The mean age at tissue harvesting for the orthotopic group was 20.3, compared to 31.5 in the heterotopic group. None had a BMI of over 30. The time to graft function in each of the groups was similar at 15 weeks. The graft longevity, on average, was about 60 weeks in the orthotopic group and 40 weeks in the heterotopic group. When IVF parameters were compared between the two groups, the orthotopic group performed better. The yield of mature oocytes was 13.5 compared to 6.2, but this did not reach statistical significance. Fertilization rates were higher in the orthotopic group, 97%, compared to the heterotopic group of 26.5%. Four of the six women conceived and delivered seven children in the orthotopic group, and only one of the six women in the heterotopic group conceived. Interestingly, this patient conceived four times and delivered three live births. Even more interesting, considering her ovary was transplanted remotely, showing that the transplanted ovary may have reactivated the in situ ovary. One of the inclusion criteria for this study was secondary amenorrhea greater than a year. So really, truly fascinating. Overall, the numbers are incredibly small, but the study is incredibly valuable. As I see it, the take-home points are as follows. For fertility, orthotopic transplantation is the more effective therapy. For endocrine function, heterotopic transplantation is just fine. However, the duration of the graft is only 40 weeks on average. I had seen some earlier claims to bank ovarian tissue 
to prolong the onset of menopause or as an alternative to HRT. With such a short duration of graft longevity, I'm not sure I'd be up for a new transplant every 40 weeks. I do think, though, this does hold promise for the future. Overall, I think this is interesting data, and I'm glad this publication made it into FNS, despite the small numbers. I'm so glad that you pointed out the short duration. So if we take a step back, it takes three months for the graph to get going and show that it's working well. And then once it gets going, you have under a year for you to use it or lose it. So in my mind, it's a if it's orthotopic and you have a chance for spontaneous conception, you have a year to kind of get going and go for it. But in more common situations, you're probably thinking about a couple of rounds of IVF to stimulate as many follicles as you can during that very short period of time. Man, that's fast. I don't know that a lot of patients are game for a big reimplantation procedure, having to wait three months and then kind of hitting the ground running to use that graft as quickly as possible. The thing that probably struck me the most was the, the outcomes between orthotopic versus heterotopic. It makes a real strong argument for why are we still doing heterotopic transplantation? I think it's a kind of an interesting novelty and there are very select cases where I think it has a strong medical indication. But for everyone else, if there's a pelvis, if there's a bit of ovary, if you can put it back into where it once came, probably going to use that tissue um, for, your, that tissue is probably going to do a lot better. Yeah. And I think the argument for heterotopic, at least that was made in this series, was that patients either didn't have ovaries, the ovaries were straight gonads, they were displaced secondary to abdominal pelvic radiation. And so the argument's really for try to put it back on the ovary. But I'm still fascinated by the patient that had fragments that were implanted remotely and had ovarian function from her existing ovary. And she had three live births and ended up needing a tubal ligation because she kept getting pregnant and delivering, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot there that we don't understand. That's an incredible case, that one patient. Yeah. And I think that the new frontier, as some people have said, in terms of prolonging menopause or as an alternative to HRT, I think that the graft longevity in this study is is very concerning to me. And you could make the argument that you chop the ovary up into multiple pieces and then every 40 weeks you reimplant new fragments. And I'm trying to think like, kind of like Botox, it wears off after a few months and then you like go get some more. I just, I don't know. That didn't sound as appealing to me. I think the big issue is not how long it lives for is kind of what happens in the first couple of hours that it, it gets reimplanted. Like the reperfusion injury that you get in ovarian tissue is just so dramatic that you may start off with a nice number of follicles and eggs and function initially, but just the, the flooding of, of blood back into that tissue damages it so significantly that you really fall off a cliff early and then you have very little road to run with that tissue beyond that. And I think if we can get better with how to minimize reperfusion injury, maximize vascularization of the graft, there's a bunch of smart people that are working on this. Um, I think that's probably going to be the name of the game to extend longevity of these tissues. Very cool paper. I encourage everyone to read it. Glad it was published in FNS. So I'm going to move on to our reproductive endocrinology section, but first my shout out in this uh, month's PCRS uh, Vitality Newsletter, Stephanie Gustin is the highlighted member. She was asked, is there a resource, book, blog, website you would recommend to other PCRS members? And she said, I really love listening to Fertility and Sterility on-air podcast. Highly recommend it to remain current and to ascertain whether our current practices, many of which lack level one data, warrant a closer evaluation and perhaps evolution. 
So I love that. I couldn't have said that better. So thank you, Stephanie, for that nice uh, quote. Yeah, for that quote. So I'm moving on to the reproductive endocrinology section. And we have a paper that's titled Endocrine Profile of the Kispeptin Receptor Agonist MVT602 in Healthy Premenopausal Women with and without ovarian stimulation. These are the results from two randomized placebo-controlled trials. Senior author is Dr. Abara and Dr. Delos, who've done most of the research on this particular uh, Kispeptin agonist. And one of the middle authors is uh, one of our loyal listeners, Max Azadi. Uh, so we appreciate this study. This is a really fun study to read just from understanding and thinking through the hypothalamic uh, pituitary gonadal access, uh, access in females. This is looking at this Kispeptin receptor agonist, uh, which has a 500 times higher affinity for KPR54 for the receptor than uh, native Kispeptin does and increased post-receptor signaling. So essentially they've engineered this drug to bind to the receptor to cause a more potent and a longer uh, GnRH firing. And so they've uh, sort of proven this interaction with the receptors and how it uh, works downstream from the receptors. And so this is now starting to look at uh, the next phases uh, that you would want to bring a drug to market. Uh, so essentially phase one, looking at safety and dosage and phase two, starting to look at efficacy and, and further into dosage. And so that's exactly what they did in these two uh, randomized trials that they present in this one paper. The first looked at 24 women in their first six days of their uh, regular follicular phase. They were given a dose of uh, this at uh, various doses of this agonist, and they measured the hormone profiles as well as the pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics of the drug itself, and safety uh, and tolerability profiles. In phase two, uh, they then went further. Uh, they took ovulating women, this time 75 of them. Once they developed a dominant follicle over 13 millimeters, uh, they gave them uh, FSH to uh, make slightly superphysiologic -physi estradiol levels, but with monofollicular recruitment. And then when they were ready for what would normally be an HCG or an agonist trigger, they gave them essentially a kispeptin trigger and uh, analyzed their serum profiles after that. Uh, so those were the two phases. So uh, what did they find? Uh, overall, the drug was safe. So that was one of the main uh, things in this phase one and phase two trial was just safety and tolerability. There were no concerns that came uh, from the administration of this drug. Now, the half-life is relatively quick at about two hours, uh, and it did successfully cause an increase in LH up to levels that we would think of as being consistent uh, with confirming ovulation, either in a just natural menstrual cycle or after an agonist uh, trigger. Uh, the time to ovulation was the same in the phase two trial between uh, giving this kispeptin uh, agonist or giving a GnRH agonist. So they used tryptorelin since this study was uh, done in Europe as opposed to some of the other GnRH agonists that are available out there. Uh, interestingly enough, they didn't find any dose response in phase one. So phase one, again, these women were given one dose of the drug sometime in the first six days of their follicular phase. So they didn't really have uh, follicle recruitment yet, or certainly did not have increased estradiol. In phase two, they were waiting to the uh, follicular phase and then giving a little bit of GnRH, 50 to 100 uh, IU dose, just to increase estradiol. 
when they did that, they did see a dose response. So as you increase the dose of this agonist for ticuspeptin, you saw an increased response in LH, FSH, and progesterone. And that actually makes sense with what we know physiologically of kispeptin receptors at the hypothalamus and having this agonist slash antagonistic level, depending upon where estradiol is. And as you get the higher estradiols, you're more likely to have that agonistic effect leading to an increased GnRH. And that's exactly what they saw, which was cool. How high did progesterone get? So after what we would consider the trigger, it was at about nine with the kispeptin agonist versus at about six uh, with the tryptorella and the GnRH agonist. Uh, so higher, maybe you could argue more physiologic. That's what the authors uh, suggest, uh, but certainly adequate in both groups. So they say that the next steps is to go and compare this drug to other triggers. Really, you're probably comparing it to a GnRH agonist. Uh, from my mind, you know, what benefit will it bring? Will it be cost effective? It's a new drug, so probably not right away. Will it be more patient-friendly? It is a sub-Q drug, so it's going to be essentially still sub-Q administration, so maybe not more, quote-unquote, patient-friendly. So will it have superior outcomes? So, you know, does a progesterone that's three nanograms on average higher when you're adequate matter? In most cases where we're using these types of triggers, we're going to be doing complete luteal phase support anyway, because this is going to be not luteotrophic. You know, they'll be luteolytic uh, from these data, essentially, within a couple of days. And so if we're replacing progesterone anyway, does it matter? Maybe if we're getting to corpus luteum cycles, and we can maybe talk through this, maybe there, in that case, if you are trying to do a trigger, maybe there's a benefit. In that case, uh, this drug compared to HCG might be a, a more interesting uh, thing to measure if you're not going to be replacing any hormones. But I love this paper for fellows. I highly encourage you to read it. It's, it reminds me of the Ganarelix dose finding study uh, that was done about 20 years ago. Uh, in HR, this one is in FNS this month, really good to read through and think through from a physiology standpoint. Uh, but I'm curious on everyone's thoughts of big picture, potential applications down the road. Pietro, I saw you squirming there as I was saying some things. <laughs> Mike, what do you think about the use of kispeptin in patients who you're worried about a potential response to, to an agonist trigger? So those patients who are hypothalamic and suppressed, the patients are coming in off of a bunch of days of OCPs. Do you think that there's a there's a role here for it? Or do you think we're also going to end up no. with the exact same response where it's just I not? I think you're work? going even a step higher. So the higher order you go on your steps to get the uh, desired LH release, probably the more risk you're at for potential fails. That would be my physiologic guess. I'm glad you said that because the to me, kispeptin is great if it can replace Lupron for the patients who won't respond to Lupron, but it's not going to do that. So it's going to be an alternative to HCG trigger for patients? Yeah, I really struggle. I mean, I think it's brilliant in how they're developing new pathways and new mechanisms. And I'm trying to be more open-minded in terms of like, why and when would we use this? But it seems to me like we already have a pretty good solution in terms of high response, reducing the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation, I don't see a benefit of this over Lupron. And in fact, I think you're going to be at greater risk for failure because you're taking it one step up in that um, hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And it just seems to me like a lot of money and a lot of time spent developing something that's not really advancing the field in a meaningful way. I think the value here is understanding the physiology rather than a new product on the line. I agree with you, Eve. Science for science's sake, Kurt. Well, you know, this might trigger someone to, to do something in the future, but I agree right now, this isn't something I'm going to run out and offer to my patients. But the science really is fascinating. Kispeptin is a really fascinating molecule and is 
purported to do so much and we actually probably know so little about it. So glad to see it published, but you're right, Eve, don't change your practice just yet. And that is, you know, one of the vague arguments that's uh, always made uh, is that there are pispeptin receptors in the ovary. And so maybe there's a direct effect uh, that's in the ovary itself, as opposed to just the effect on GnRH and downstream LH and FSH. Certainly they, you know, we could at least say biologic plausibility, but there's a lot of receptors found in a lot of places throughout the body that, uh, that where that doesn't always pan out. Great. So very good paper. I especially encourage fellows to read it and just, uh, you know, rethink through your understanding of the candy Y neurons and GnRH and the, the pituitary effects. Very, very good uh, article. I, I loved geeking out on it. All right, so next uh, we are moving to Pietro. This is a article on the risks of uh, myomectomy. And Pietro, I just have to say, your name has been used in vain in NIH fellow academics three times just in the last month. People have said Pietro said this on the podcast and almost like it's gospel. So uh, well done. My fellows are listening and learning from you. Yeah, well, the power is intoxicating. I have to be very careful what I say or don't say here. Um, I'm flattered, Micah. I want to talk to you guys about an article that we don't get a, a ton of in fertility and sterility, which are surgical articles, particularly uh, large database surgical articles. I feel like they often live in other journals, so we're really excited to see it here. And I think I'm probably tapped for this article because I'm probably the one who still does a fair share of abdominal, minimally invasive, and hysteroscopic myomectomies. So it really warms my heart to see articles like this being published. The icing on the cake for this article is that both the first author and senior author are friends and surgical colleagues and members of the Society for Reproduction productive surgery. So here's the deal. When I'm faced with a patient talking about a myomectomy, I mentioned the obvious risks, risk of bleeding, risk of infection, risk of injuring surrounding structures, kind of your boilerplate stuff. But whenever I'm operating in a minimally invasive fashion, and I always mention the risk of conversion to open, and I always mention the risk of hysterectomy as a life-saving step. If you can believe it, however, no one has really looked at modern data in a well-thought-out way to truly assess what the risk of hysterectomy is at the time of myomectomy. And given that no good data existed, these authors embarked on this study to not only quantify that risk, but also describe procedural complications and 30-day post-op morbidity. First author is Dr. Katie Coyne, one of the uh, reproductive endocrinology fellows at the University Hospitals in Cleveland and a surgical scholars track uh, member for the Society of Reproductive Surgery. And she's um, mentored by Dr. Zarak Khan, division director at the Mayo Clinic, reproductive endocrinologist and surgeon. These two had the idea to utilize the American College of Surgeons National Surgical Quality Improvement Program database, looking at data from 2010 to 2021. The NISQIP, as it's called, is a validated surgical outcomes-based program that measures preoperative risk factors and 30-day patient outcomes for patients undergoing surgical procedures across 600 hospitals in the United States with the goal of improving the quality of surgical care. You see a lot of this data being used for surgical research and general surgery and a lot of the other surgical service specialties. So it's nice to see this applied to women's health. They specifically looked at patients who are undergoing open, minimally invasive, and hysteroscopic myomectomy for symptomatic indications. The primary outcome of the study was to determine the proportion of patients undergoing a hysterectomy at the time of the myomectomy as an unplanned procedure. And the secondary outcomes were the major complications within 30 days after that index procedure. In total, 39,000 myomectomies were identified, of which 13,000 were included for analysis. Of the 13,000 myomectomies, 399 patients had a hysterectomy performed during a planned myomectomy procedure, which is around a 3% rate of hysterectomy. The highest was for a laparoscopic approach, 7.1%. 
followed by open, which was 3.2%. And finally, for hysteroscopy, it was 1.9%. Man, 2% of hysteroscopic myomectomies are resulting in in a hysterectomy? That felt like an order of magnitude higher than what I felt, what I've seen, what I counsel patients on. A scary high number. And I hope everyone's warning signs are going off when they hear that. We'll get back to that in a second, because I think there's potentially some confounding here that could be interesting to, to dig into. So let me tell you, of the hysterectomies that were performed, nearly 52% were performed via an open approach, and the other 47% or so were performed laparoscopically. But believe it or not, in cases of hysterectomy with an open approach for the myomectomy, 14% were performed laparoscopically. What? That's kind of odd. I'm not sure what to make of that. Basically, they're saying they were doing an open myomectomy, And at some point they said, we need to perform a hysterectomy, close the fascia, skin, convert it to laparoscopy to complete the hysterectomy. Um, I don't really know what to make of that. Um, Maybe this was bleeding noted at the end of the procedure as they were closing, um, cardiovascular collapse at the end of the procedure at the completion, really hard to kind of make heads or tails of that. On the flip side, in cases of hysterectomy with an initial laparoscopic approach for the myomectomy, only 20% were converted to abdominal the other 80% were able to be completed laparoscopic and still kind of reap the benefit of minimally invasive surgery, which I guess big picture is still a a positive thing for patients. Now, who are the patients who suffered hysterectomy? So their increased risk of unplanned hysterectomy was noted for as age increase, specifically above the age of 43, white race compared to black race, ASA class of three or greater compared to class one or two, and obese patients uh, compared to normal weight patients. The laparoscopic approach increased the risk of hysterectomy when compared to the open approach. There was a threefold higher odds of having a hysterectomy if you were having your myomectomy performed laparoscopically. But most interestingly, and here's your kind of tie-in, having low fibroid burden increased the risk of unplanned hysterectomy. So we're going to come back to this in a minute because I think this is now the two things that I want to connect the dots for us. But let me continue with the complications. So if you did have a hysterectomy, what happened in the short and long term? Well, the rate of both major and minor complications was increased for patients undergoing hysterectomy compared to no hysterectomy, 18 versus 10%. This included things like blood transfusion, sepsis, no real difference in deeper soft tissue or superficial tissue infections. Now, back to the point I made earlier. So although the overall rate of hysterectomy at the time of myomectomy in the study was 3%, the rate amongst The rate amongst patients having a laparoscopic myomectomy was 7.1%. This was the highest. Now, the significantly increased rate of hysterectomy in the laparoscopic group may be in part affected by a referral bias. So think about this. If not only the laparoscopic approach as well as a low fibroid burden were considered risk factors, what's happening here? Is this surgeon experience with a minimally invasive approach? So you can envision a world in which a low-volume surgeon with a lack of a ton of expertise repetitions with laparoscopy may be referring some of their patients to tertiary care centers, subspecialists for either an abdominal approach or in the cases of a high fibroid burden, a laparoscopic approach with MIGS, but kind of holding on to the patients with one or two fibroids and saying, you know what, I can probably tackle this laparoscopically. Well, that may be the link here why surgeons with limited laparoscopic experience might then encounter the interoperative difficulty completing the laparoscopic myomectomy in patients with low fibroid burden, and then having to resort to hysterectomy due to lack of skill, comfort, ability to complete the procedure safely. These are all kind of conjecture, but something that I think the authors um, point out in their discussion section and something that the folks in the letter to the editor that accompanies this piece also pointed out. There's kind of something funny there. The numbers don't add up. They don't make sense. One of the final points we'll make about this article is that the, the thing that's kind of the elephant in the room here is that you don't understand 
how to contextualize this rate of unplanned hysterectomy based on surgeon experience and case volume. So there's lots of data suggesting that high volume surgeons have the best surgical outcomes. It'd be really cool to stratify the rate of hysterectomy by surgeon based on the number of these procedures they perform in a given year to really fully understand, are we seeing that 7% in low volume surgeons and the rate of conversion to hysterectomy is actually what we think it is, the zero and a half, 1% um, for high volume surgeons. I think that's the kind of the, the elephant in my room that I'd like to get answered. But really scary, I think, is the big picture that the rate of hysterectomy is this high for patients having hysteroscopic myomectomy and laparoscopic myomectomy. I'll shut up for a second. Kurt, Eve, Micah, did you kind of have the same impression when you heard these numbers? I mean, I did, but I I can't get out the idea of an access myomectomy. And could it have been that the myomectomy was just part of the planned hysterectomy in order to create more access to remove the uterus? And so in my limited experience, and granted, I don't do these big cases, but I've been part of many hysterectomy in my training where you would do a concomitant myomectomy just to make the case easier. And so I really wonder how many of these are actual complications versus just visualization and confounding of billing codes. Potentially, there's a lot of nuance that's lost in billing codes. I think it's just really hard to draw conclusions that these are complications simply by looking at the billing codes from these large surgical databases. It's difficult to draw precise conclusions from a study like this. And I saw this in the reviews of this paper where some people were very aggressively saying, I can't really tell what the truth is. Therefore, you know, this study isn't worth publishing. And other people saying, yeah, but it gives us these major themes that really are generating conversation like it's doing on this podcast, which is which is why I really like this kind of study. So the take-home message for me was whenever you see the data in aggregate, the numbers kind of blew me away that it's much more than I thought it was. And that's a really important point. Now, why that is, Eve has brought out some really good questions, but the fact is it's it's more than you thought. When you're in your own world, you know that occasionally a myomectomy is going to turn to hysterectomy, but you think, ah, that's that's okay. That's just one. Um, it's just that's going to happen. You don't realize that your one might be part of the larger picture you didn't know about that was going on. Um, and I loved your points about how do we reduce it now? Yeah, Bill and Co's have a lot to do with it, but I, you know, it really does go back to you know this opinion, not data driven. That you know, people that do it all the time pay attention to complications. If you do it once in a while and say, "Oh well, my third one, the only one I did today, vertical hysterectomy," that's not so bad. But but that rate overall, when cumulatively put together, is just way too high. Heard this uh, article and the letter to the editor and the reply were also great, and it made me appreciate uh, people like you who are epidemiologists, because even just estimating a prevalence, as this study shows can be so difficult and so many people can uh, disagree with, with what those estimates are for all the reasons we've been discussing. So like you say, it raises the question. I think that's the big picture. Yeah, but the point, Micah, isn't, and it's a good one that you're alluding to, it's just because you disagree that that might not be the estimate you thought doesn't mean that estimate doesn't add to the scientific literature or to the value, right? It's like forecasting the weather. I didn't get it right, but how close enough is it that it that it's valuable information to make us learn more about how we make myomectomy safer or who should is the right patient to have a myomectomy. Yeah, I think you also have to be familiar as a surgeon with your own risks and with the risks of those who you refer patients to. I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of quoted rates of loss from amniocentesis or CVS. Like at our center, that's 
closer to one in 700 and not one in 250. And so I think a lot of it goes to who's performing the surgery, what's their experience, how often do they do these? It's it's why I don't do them anymore because I don't feel that I do enough complex laparoscopy to continue to offer it to my patients. But I work with a team of MIG surgeons who are phenomenal, who have arguably very low rates of complications. And so I think it really, it's so hard to say, I agree, you have to look at the trends, but you also have to know the individual data from where you are. Yeah, I think we're all coming to this with our own bias of you operate at Northwestern, Mike operates at Walter Reed, Kurt at Penn, uh, me at Beth Israel. We have a very small, narrow window of, I think, generally very good surgical outcomes. But what's happening in kind of outside of our walls, there's a lot of good surgery happening in the community. Don't get me wrong. But you sometimes see these patients undergoing surgery with someone who does two of these a year, three of these a year. And that's how you can see a number tick up to 7.1%. I've never seen a hysterectomy at the time of myomectomy. In four years of residency, three years of fellowship, and two years of attending practice now, I just haven't seen it. But I think I've been lucky to not have seen it. Yeah, but, but I, would, I would argue, have you seen a myomectomy at the time of hysterectomy to make the surgery easier? Yes, all the time. But I'm not sure that that procedure then is getting recorded as a CPT code. I think the global procedure is still the CPT code for a hysterectomy because you don't get to bill for a myomectomy and a hysterectomy at the same time. The the hysterectomy trumps that. So I think the CPT code getting logged is just the singular hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's definitely true for hysteroscopic myomectomy. There's no reason why a hysteroscopic myomectomy ends up with a a hysterectomy. You know, like that doesn't make sense. So I think that 2% number is real. And that number to me was the scariest because I do a boatload of hysteroscopic myomectomies and one out of every 50 patients is going to have a hysterectomy. What? I've never counseled patients like that. That's crazy. Yeah. No, I I wholeheartedly agree with you on on that hysteroscopy portion, but I disagree. And I think that when you um, perform a myomectomy, like people do bill it differently. So I think that's somewhat state dependent in how you bill. But anyhow, I think really good discussion as always. I'm just going to wrap that one up by what's been one of my personal biggest growths as we've done this podcast and learning from all of you is sort of what Kurt said. Well, I might disagree with the precision of how I think they estimated it or some of the confounding that maybe wasn't missed. I'm starting to pay more attention to the overall big picture of what what the study is addressing and raising. Let's say, try not to miss the uh, forest for the trees uh, sort of perspective on these. So uh, I appreciate that growth uh, that you guys have taught me as we've discussed these articles. As with every month, there are so many good articles. Uh, We have a lot of video articles, other letters to the editor, research letters, other original science. Uh, This shouldn't be a substitute for reading the journal, so we encourage you to log in, and we appreciate all of you uh, who listen to us uh, so regularly. And we want to wish you a welcome and happy and prosperous uh, 2024. And a healthy 2024. (laughs) Healthy 2024 for all. Yeah, happy holidays to everybody. This podcast is so much fun. Uh, I learn so much talking to you and i hope that we can disseminate that enthusiasm and a little kernel of knowledge i'm very impressed with the quality of research that's getting into fertility and sterility send us more we'll talk about it and perhaps we'll talk about your article next year this concludes our episode of fertility and sterility on air Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 
This podcast is produced by Dr. Molly Cornfield and Dr. Adriana Wong. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.